0: Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. I'm with Emily today. No, Bradley. That's oh, okay.
1: I feel like it's been a while since I've been around, though. So it's nice to be back. I've missed it you It is all. nice to have you back. <laughs> I
0: missed you, too. Uh, more importantly, for once than Emily, we have a guest today. And with us today is Nikki Warner, the communications director for The Good Acre, which is just down the road from me here at campus. Thanks for being here, Nikki.
2: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
0: Uh, the way this all started was way back over a hundred episodes ago. Uh, Natasha Mortensen was on the podcast and in response to a question fr- from us saying, you know, my, my kids are going to grow up in the cities. How do I keep them close to agriculture? one of the things she brought up was the Good Acre. So that's how we got here. It took us a while to get here, over 100 episodes, but that's how we got here. Before we get started in, in full, there's two questions we ask every guest, Nikki, and we'll, we'll help you if you need help on this one. The, the first one we'll start is, what is your favorite breed of dairy cow?
2: Ooh, okay.
0: You can look up some pictures to up pull,
2: quick. pulling up Google quick. I'm gonna Google that.
1: Hey, <laughs> okay. okay. That's I respect fine. that. You wanna make an <laughs> right. informed decision.
2: Ooh, okay. I will say Jersey cattle because that's chocolate milk cow, correct?
1: Oh man.
2: Joe's <laughs> reaction. <just> so
1: <laughs> there there are no right or wrong answers, but Joe is convinced the only right answer is Jersey. So, and Bradley, who's not here, agrees.
2: <laughs> I'm an East Coast person, so I have a little bit of cow literacy, but yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, those Jersey cattle, that's, that's where it's at. When I, I used to work at farmer's markets in DC and there was a, um, there was a, a dairy from Maryland that had a uh, Clear Springs Creamery, I believe they had a, a herd of uh, Jersey cattle and best milk and yogurt. They'd sell it at market and people just chug it right from the bottle. Best.
0: You can't go wrong. I mean, this is one of my favorite guests so far.
2: Um, <laughs> this is off to a good start. All okay. right. start.
0: Yes. Okay. With, before we move on to the next question, we've got some totals update. Bradley had a guest on by himself last week and it didn't have the list because I don't allow him to have the list. Not sure I would trust him to not edit the totals.
1: I would not trust him. I just want to be clear.
0: The tally as it sits now with last week, uh, our votes, and this week. We have Holstein at 23. Jersey at 17 now creeping up. Brown Swiss at 9. Montbelliard at 3. Dutch Belted at 3. Guernsey at 3 with a special shout out to Taffy. Normandy at 2. Milking Shorthorn at 1. And Ayrshire at 1. Get your Googling ready. The next... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> question is what is your favorite breed of beef cow
2: Ooh.
1: Hmm. there's there's a lot Oops. more options with beef cattle so i feel like it always you know Man. takes a little more time
2: <laughs> gosh that's a tough question i don't know you know i like to um i get a lot of my beef from sunshine harvest farm and I don't know what kind of cows that they have.
0: Well, let's look.
2: We've got beef, pork, and lamb.
0: Oh, they've got a a, a bunch of different ones, it looks like. I
1: was gonna say, I bet there's a photo and every cow
2: looks different in it.
0: Uh, it that is true, that is true. <laughs> Hard to pick out a definitive breed there.
2: But my favorite type of uh, beef cow is the one that's nearest me. That's my answer. Oh, I like that. Local. I'll reach out and ask them what What have they been, uh, what's been, <laughs> who's been to the butcher's shop lately? <laughs> what?
0: Yeah, yeah. Reach out. Let me know. We'll update accordingly. I do have to update it uh, either way for last week because we had a, had some shift. Black Angus are at 16. Herefords are at 10. Black Baldy at five, Scottish Highlander at four, Red Angus at three, Shorthorn at three, Charlay at three now, Belted Galloway at two, Brahmin at two, and then all with one. Stabilizer, a Simmental, Lorry, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, and White Park. There's plenty, plenty, yes. and they all taste great, um, do. so you can't go wrong, really, but there is a right answer there as well. <sighs>
1: Can we move on with it now, Joe?
0: Yes, we'll move on. (laughs) We'll
1: move on. We'll
0: get to the actual programming now after we've answered those two important questions. All right, Nikki, big picture uh, and kind of mission right away. Get everyone on the same page. What is The Good Acre?
2: So The Good Acre is a nonprofit food hub. Um, Our mission is to unlock economic opportunity for farmers in our region through a unique combination of personalized support and market development. Uh, we work mostly with produce farmers specialty crop growers um, and we've been open here our facility in Falcon Heights opened in the uh, fall of 2015 and so um, this will be our eighth season here at the Good acre um, and we move a lot of local food through our food hub to wholesale buyers and community members through our farm share program Um Yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Food hubs are pretty uh, complex operations, though. But, you know, out of intense complexities, a lot of intense simplicities can emerge. Um, And really, those simplicities, it boils down to technical assistance and and market access for farmers is really what our uh, core competency is here. And a lot of that is because of the infrastructure that we have. Our our food hub facility consists of uh, about... 45,000 cubic feet of cold storage. we have got some freezer storage. we have got space for dry storage and a a big open warehouse floor where we aggregate, which really is, according to the USDA's definition, um, what a food hub primarily, um, or what a food hub's primary function is. I think the USDA's definition is actually a food hub is a business or organization that manages the aggregation distribution and marketing of local food products to strengthen their ability to satisfy wholesale and institutional demand. And that is definitely what happens here at The Good Acre and so much more.
0: There, there's a lot going on. There's programs everywhere. We'll get to them. Another question just for background sake is where did it start and who, who had the vision to, to get this thing rolling?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we were seed funded by actually um a few members of the Pollitt family, um Polett Family Foundation, kind of a big name here in in Minnesota. Pollitt's own the Twins. They do a lot of philanthropic work in the Twin Cities, especially in the food space. And starting back in, you know, 2014-2015, they were doing a lot of research to kind of find out what were some of the gaps that it, that existed in the food system that were preventing farmers from getting market access, that were preventing local foods from being in in all the places that we shop for foods and eat local foods. They did a lot of research to kind of find out what they could do to help bolster a regional food system here in the Twin Cities. Uh, And that's how they got hooked up with our our initial like general manager and then uh, turned executive director. Uh, our founding ED was Reese Williams, who has about 20 years of organic farming experience. He really understood that aggregation is a huge unlock for institutions that want to be able to source locally but can't manage the relationships with many small farmers to meet to fulfill some of those um, larger orders that wholesale institutions place. So it was settled that a food hub facility is what uh, the Polans would start investing in. So that was really critical, um, critical infrastructure investment upfront that they put up to allow us to even have this space. We have, you know, in addition to the warehouse and the cold storage, the dry storage and the floor space for aggregation, we also have a community kitchen uh, that's home to about two dozen local food makers. And we also have a classroom too, where we can have you know, that we rent out to different groups working in the sustainability and food space. It really is a place where food and community kind of come together.
0: I'm hearing a ton of words in your response to that that really reflect into the cattle industry as well. So like, especially when we're talking small producers, emerging farmers, uh, part of the issue is, is figuring out how to have a stronger hand in the market. And so we do have concepts similar to this, where we have calf pools or things where we actually pool resources from several small farmers to then find market share. So it's kind of cool to hear it talked about on the produce side as well. It, it, again, the, the challenges seem fairly similar. It's space and time and money and all this other stuff to and coordination mostly. Before we get into the the programs and all the other things you have going on, because there's a there's a huge list of things you guys are doing. What are some of those challenges that you guys have seen and, and how you chose to reach into the areas you did?
2: Right. Well, you know, I think that our current food system is a globalized food system. It's a fragile food system based on large supply chains. And as we've seen during the pandemic, whenever one part of the chain fails, I mean, it's it can be disastrous. There was, you know, supply chains were in the news during the pandemic in ways that we'd never seen before here at the Good Acre. And, you know, I think that what we are trying to do here is not necessarily the most efficient thing. I think efficiency is how we have got into the place that we're at with our food system right now. And it's these smaller regional supply chains where regional producers have market access to be sustainable, to invest back in the the health of their soil and their own farm businesses. Um, It's these types of operations that are going to be what helps us have a more resilient food system, especially in the face of a changing climate.
0: You've said the word sustainable a couple of different times here, and I think I've heard you use it both ways: economic sustainability, environmental sustainability. In which it's always, especially working with farmers, you gotta have both. One of the questions I have when I when I look through your materials and and, and your programs is: Do you guys have like a set of requirements for your farmers as far as do they have to apply? Do they have to conform to a certain set of standards before they can be involved uh, with your food hub?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, we don't have a formal application pro- process. We do have a farmer intake form. So if you visit our website, thegoodacre.org, you can see our, our farmer intake form really asks uh, questions like, do you own? Do you rent? How many years have you been farming? What are up to five crops you'd be interested in growing for the good acre? What are your pest and weed control methods? Basically, just kind of some of these basic questions to find out if this is, is this a career path? Is this a hobby? Are you a farmer? Are you a gardener? <laughs> you know, coming to the Good Acre myself, coming from like a farmer's market background, I've really had to rethink everything that I thought of as a farmer whenever I, I moved here to the Twin Cities. I see the average farmer that we work with at the Good Acre is... A renter, So they live in Brooklyn Center. They live in East St. Paul. They live in Falcon Heights, where we're located. Uh, and they farm on plots they rent, sometimes multiple plots in, in the first ring suburbs. You know, we've visited farms down uh, off Cedar, you know, in Farmington, uh, up near Maple Grove in Osseo. It's not like a farmer walks out in their backyard and there's their land and they've got their house with their white picket fence. A lot of the farmers we work with are immigrant or refugee farmers um, and organic certification is like not even on their radar, but the thought of like using chemicals is so not even a part of their lexicon. Um, our farmers that, that sell to the Good Acre are watering, seeding, weeding, and planting everything by hand. So we have a, more farmers than we've ever worked with this season. We've got contracts with about 55 farmers totaling just over a million dollars in contracted sales that we hope to have come through the store this season. But we've got about 130 farmers and, and food producers in our network total. And When I started at the Good Acre in 2016, we were working with about two dozen farmers. So it's really interesting to see how many farmers there are out there, the capacity that they have to grow. And what we're really trying to do here with our programs and services is to match up or link up that capacity and supply that there is on the farm side with demand from wholesale buyers uh, who are values aligned with us um, in that they care about sourcing local produce from farmers that are in the area, so that more food from here is for here, and that we're not trying to compete on price. You know, it's really that like values based alignment that we have.
1: So one thing I want to mention quick, Nikki, I was taking a look at the Good Acres website. Um, and the the first tab I went to was you do have a tab with some of the farmers that you work with. Um, and and that was really cool. So you get to see, you know, what farm they represent, where that produce is actually coming from, so where their land is. Um, and And you get a, a really nice sense for who you know who these people are and i saw there was a couple family pictures and some couples and you know just a wide breadth and variety of people that are doing this so i encourage people to check that out very cool nice feature of the website but a question i have related to that so for the most part do farmers come to the good acre you know fill out your intake form and say we want to work with you as the Good Acre, have you done any outreach? You know, looking, say, one of your wholesale buyers is looking for a specific product, will you then turn around and try to find a farm that has that product? So, how, how does that kind of work?
2: Oh, that's a great question. And I think that really, farmers have come to us through word of mouth. We've spent a lot of time just investing in building relationships with our farmers. Sometimes our network partly expands because. Farmers tell their friends, farmers tell their family members who start their own farm plots. Um, It really uh, ranges the gamut. I will say one of the biggest game changers for us in how we've been able to reach more farmers, how we've been able to grow from that, you know, dozen, two dozen farmers to like the 130 plus that we've got on our roster right now is through our LEAF program. Our leaf program is something we started in 2020. It's the local emergency assistance farmer fund, and it was established really as a as a response to the pandemic. You know, March 2020, seeds were already in the ground, markets weren't opening in the same way that they were before. There was a harvest coming, and for a lot of farmers, there was no place for it to go. So we pulled together with quite a few different partners to um, pull our funds together to let farmers at markets know that they could bring that produce to the good acre. We would pay market rate prices for it. Um, and we donate that produce to hunger relief organizations in the twin cities who, you know, the, the demand has only increased from 2020 for fresh produce at food shelves across the state. And so through that program, we were able to offer farmers a guarantee that we'll purchase up to X dollar amount. That first season, it was up to $7,500 worth of produce that we guaranteed to buy from each farmer in the program. This year, our LEAF program, we have, I believe it's 68 farmers that are going to be in the program, and we're guaranteeing to purchase up to $5,000 from each of those farmers in the program. We like to call it wholesale like training wheels. <laughs> because to be able to grow for wholesale um you know you've got to have wax boxes you got to have bunch sizes appropriately you got to have the right case weight this is all part of the technical assistance that we offer farmers who are looking to expand their market access beyond just direct sales to farmers markets or their own CSA and because we're working with partners that we are donating the produce to we can really lessen the amount of orders that are rejected because of certain quality control issues. There's a lot more flexibility there because it's not like we're fulfilling specific crop orders, um, which is a whole nother level of, you know, technical assistance that we provide farmers. But I will say of since 2020, about we've had about 85 different farmers be a part of the LEAF program. About half of the farmers, I think it's of the 85, 45 that we work with now have ongoing wholesale contracts where we do that preseason planning um, with them, and they have more guaranteed consistent sales, which in turn helps them uh, with financing. If they want to lease new equipment, buy land, those kind of things, it, it shows kind of proof of income. Um, and so it really has been probably the best way that we've been able to get new farmers uh, into this wholesale program, and, you know, it's working. <laughs>
0: A lot of the things you're talking about, especially like this program is really cool. And I like the description as the wholesale training wheels. That's that's a perfect description. It's not inexpensive to do. I mean, 68 farmers at $5,000 a piece. Mm -hmm. What I guess what I'm asking is, how do you guys keep up that uh, ability to do those things for these farmers? What what keeps the money coming in for you?
2: Well, The Good Acre is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we have been from the get-go, which is really instrumental. About 75% of our funding comes from philanthropic donations, grants, individual donations. Uh, The produce biz is not, it doesn't have very high margins, you know. I think the USDA just uh, released, their latest figures are that, what is it, 14 cents of each dollar goes to the farmer. You know, here at the Good Acre, it's more like, you know, 85 cents of each dollar goes back to the farmer. So our margins are pretty thin. Our programs aren't all self-sustaining, but through this philanthropic support, and actually this year, through the state legislature, we were able to secure some funding. In Minnesota, we've got the trifecta of the DFL in uh, the governor's office, in the House and Senate, and we all know what the F in DFL stands for. Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And so we really were helping those ag committees in the House and Senate know that if they want to invest in farmers in Minnesota, in building community food systems that are resilient, that allow our most vulnerable citizens to get healthy, culturally relevant crops, investing in programs like the LEAF program are wise investments to make. Um, and so we were able to secure six hundred thousand dollars through the Ag Omnibus Bill that passed in in May. We'll get three hundred thousand of that starting in January for the twenty twenty four fiscal year, and again next year. And that money is going directly to purchase produce from Minnesota farmers in the Leaf Program. So we try to bolster that with you know additional funds that um, that we fundraise and apply for grants for. But it's also been really interesting during the pandemic, even the the federal government threw a lot of money into nutrition and food programs. And so there was a lot of like throwing spaghetti to the wall and seeing what sticks. A lot of that one-time funding has expired, but I think there's, there's a lot of lessons learned about what, what did work. And we saw some tremendous numbers about, you know, child hunger being reversed, you know, whenever there was child tax credits out there for, it's just one example, but you know, some of these investments in market access specifically for small produce farmers have had huge positive economic impacts in the communities where these farmers live and work and farm. Um, the USDA's Local Food Purchase Assistance Program uh, grant program is a big one that they just closed applications for that grant now, um, the LFPA program. It's really to allow more organizations to do exactly what we're doing with the leaf program, which is sourcing produce from you know underserved or underrepresented farmers uh, and, and donating it getting it to, to communities in need. so it's really cool to see models like the leaf program being replicated in other parts of the state. that was also part of what we were advocating for in the legislature this year. Um, our initial bill was requesting I think it was five hundred thousand dollars yearly to be able to run the good acres leaf program and expand it to other parts of the state where we have pilot projects in Bemidji and Rice County and other, other parts of the state where there's, there's a lot of need and interest and partners to uh, do similar programs. So
0: it sounds complicated. And like you said, margins are tight. So I applaud Mm -hmm. you, Emily and I being an extension though about grants and and the the process of grant writing so we applaud you for (laughs) for for sticking with that one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is wholesale and you guys helping with the market and trying to get that wholesale connection Uh, we haven't really touched on your farm share program too much Uh, you know it's become much more popular i think since the pandemic farm share programs csa's those kind of things Tell us about your program and maybe what makes it different from from other programs.
2: Yeah, yeah, great question. We're really intentional and we we have been since the early days not to call our program a CSA because the CSA really is, you know, we're honoring that relationship that one household has with one farm. Because we're an aggregator, our farm share is, it's really, it's a multi-farm share. So we've sourced from anywhere from you know, 20 to 30 different farmers and producers for the items in our full season farm share, which is an 18-week season. This week is actually the very first week of the farm share. We've got 520 full season members that'll pick up here at the Goodacre or off-site. We've got about over a dozen other pickup locations across the Twin Cities. Um plus all kinds of cool add-ons. We've got a meat add-on from Sunshine Harvest Farm. We've got um Eggs, cheese, bread. We've got a locally milled flour add on. If any dairy farmers are interested in a dairy add on, you can email me at nikiavagogear.org. <laughs> our farm share program is really the first program that we had to be able to buy produce from farmers and get it out into the community. It's really the only direct to consumer channel that we have. You know, our wholesale, we're really more far removed from the end eater. You know, our buyers. Our customers for wholesale are other wholesale buyers. So we're not sure all the places that it goes, you know, especially with like Second Harvest, for example. They're one of the largest food banks in the Midwest and they've got hundreds of agency partners that that the produce that they purchase through our food hub can end up at. So, um, but the farm share program is, it's really something that we hold close because those, you know, 520 households are really engaged with the work we do. They get to know our farmers, you know, they get to, they get to eat the same food that goes out through our wholesale program. And we've also been able to extend that farm share, those like direct-to-consumer offerings to be year-round because it's totally possible to eat local in Minnesota all year round, like despite our notorious winters. We've got a harvest share that's like a smaller program that goes, you know, peak season, August through like end of September. We've got grilling boxes, which is like once a month, you know, June, July, August, September. We've got a late season share, an off season share. So, you know, we try to have some sort of offering or curated box for our farm share members and for our community members each month out of the year.
0: There's a lot going on there. I encourage you to check it out. There's all sorts of options, like you said. There's add-ons, all sorts of things there. We've talked a lot about, and basically, you have two sets of programs, right? Like stuff that's focused on the the grower and then people who produce food, and then you have your culinary programs as well. And we haven't touched on that at all. And I, I know people are listening and they're like, how is there even more going on in this one place, but that there is. So culinary side of things, tell tell us what you guys got going there.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think you said it best, Dr. Joe, There's a lot going on. And one of the things that we've really one of the conclusions that we've really come to in the strategic planning process that we just recently completed is that we're really trying to build not just a sustainable and resilient food system but a community centered food system. And so actually this this summer we are transitioning our culinary programs to Healthy Roots Institute, which is run by an extremely talented woman named Michelle Cunningham. She has really created our culinary training program from the ground up. And we're really excited for her to take that on her own at Healthy Roots Institute. You know, the culinary program started here at the Goodacre because as we were developing wholesale markets in the farm to school, K through 12 school space, We learned pretty quick that you cannot sell a nutrition service team a thousand pounds of butternut squash and expect it to go well. You know, you've got to do recipe development. You've got to get staff buy-in. You've got to, you know, teach scratch cooking skills. And so in an effort to not try to house all of the things in this small facility, you know, we've really taken a hard look at where we are, where we can do better by partnering. And so that's a, a perfect example of how, you know, of, of how and why we're transitioning these culinary programs. Michelle and Healthy Roots will definitely be our preferred culinary program provider. But there's a lot of really talented chefs doing this kind of work in, in school lunchrooms and other food service management kitchens across the cities. So especially for schools, though, scratch cooking is just one of those things that, you know, once you kind of get over... The, the hump and the change of just you know going from heat and serve to, to scratch cooking it pays off dividends the food tastes better it's healthier it's cheaper to do everything from scratch it's just you've got to work on efficiencies to be able to feed you know a thousand two thousand three thousand kids in you know four hours um, a lot of that also depends on more investment from department of agriculture for example they've got this agri grant program that can help Schools buy equipment to do more scratch cooking. Robo-coos, combi ovens, tilt skillets. These are all like industrial equipment that kitchens need to be able to make food in large quantities and fast uh, with whole unprocessed produce. So, you know, kitchens in in schools across the the country have really been decimated over the years. And so reinvesting back into those ways that um, create more market access opportunities for farmers ultimately. It's something that we're, we're really in, invested in, in furthering and, and we're not doing it alone, which is the cool thing.
0: It's all amazing. And I'm so glad that Natasha uh, told us uh, that we, we had to get you on. And I'm sorry it took so long to get there. Maybe you expected this question, but I think hopefully you expected this question. It's produce focused. This is the Moose Room. It's all about cows. We can go two different ways with this, right? So so why did you choose to go with a produce-focused system? And is there any plan to, to get into or including meat in a more meaningful way in your program? Mm,
2: that's a really good question. And I would say that we probably, you know, we got into the produce biz or this place opened up really with a produce focus precisely because a lot of the direct market farmers, didn't have any other option besides just farmer's markets, or they didn't have the marketing skills or capabilities to find, uh, you know, other markets on their own uh, outside of a farmer's market. So there was a need there um, specifically for produce farmers in this twin cities region. But then, you know, to just today, I was looking at our uh, 2022 numbers and we, we collect a lot of data, you know, as an aggregator, as the customer for all of these, you know, 130 farmers that, that, work with us or that we have transactions with in some way, shape, or form, like 90% of our sales happen in an 18 to 20-week window from from June to the first hard frost. And so we have to look beyond produce to, to sustain the operation of this facility on a year-round basis. So, you know, we we work with a lot of value-added producers, you know, hot sauce, kimchi, sauerkraut, We've got a whole fermentation station, like in our warehouse, just of like makers that use our shared use commercial kitchen space. But I think that also expands into meat, dairy, eggs, and and that kind of thing. One thing that we do see a lot of, though, is um, who we source from over the course of the year really changes. I think that the the, the numbers from last year were that. Eighty-seven percent of the produce that came through our door last year were from farmers of color. But whenever you look at off-peak season months, um, most of our produce comes from uh, white-owned mechanized farms who have the ability to do storage crops or season extension. There's not a lot of farmers of color that are providing enough, you know, meat eggs, meat eggs, and dairy to fulfill some of the wholesale orders that we have in the winter months. And so, you know, we're kind of looking into why that is. What are some of the barriers that um, businesses are facing? Because we'd like to be able to use the capacity of this space better when it's not produce time of year. So, yeah, that's something we're definitely looking into.
0: That's really nice to know. And I I know that the question was quite leading, right, coming from us and our bias, you know, to say, you know, where where are the cows and all this. But there's cheese, there's meat. And I, I think I can speak for extension on this. If you guys need any help in getting to that point, let us know. Emily, Brad, and I are more than happy to help dairy or the beef side of things. And I guess we can talk about other species as well if you have that, th- that issue. Yeah, right. you
2: know, one perfect example is like uh, a lot of these farm to school grants that school districts in the state of Minnesota are getting. Uh, allow for you know the purchase of minnesota grown and raised beef products and sometimes we have a hard time finding enough supply or those producers so we absolutely should talk because i think that the farm to school reimbursement funds are higher than they've ever been so let's make sure that 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 those schools that have those dollars to buy local product especially if they want to buy meat products for their lunch line can get connected with producers either through places like the Good Acre that aggregate or through, you know, producers in their own communities. So, yeah, let us know.
0: Perfect. We will definitely follow up after.
1: Well, we have, you know, discussed a lot here and I think learned a lot, not only about what the Good Acre does, but also, you know, I've learned a lot about how our food systems are at play especially you know in the metro area so i'm not in the metro so i don't always see how those systems work so it's been great having you nikki and i again encourage everybody you know learn more about the good acre thegoodacre.org is their website please check it out i have had the opportunity to tour the facility in the past it is beautiful it's such a great resource for the community and such a great resource for you know all food producers you know that that need that extra hub to go to so thank you so much for being on Nikki. And, you know, I'm curious if, if anybody here listening is like, Hey, I'd like to, you know, just check that place out and, and go and see it. Is there ever an opportunity to go in for a tour or can people just check in and say hello? Um, how, how can people, you know, kind of access the good acre?
2: Totally. Um, I love to give a tour so people can reach out to me directly. Nikki at the if they want to pop in. Also, you know, we are right on Larbinger Avenue, like at the, the next building right next to the entrance of the state fairgrounds. So if you're in Falcon Heights for the state fair this summer, drive by the Good Acre. I'm hoping to have a fun little, uh, like, yard sign situation that helps people, you know, links to a video to kind of show them what happens in this space. Um, you can sign up for our quarterly newsletters and our website to get program updates. Follow us on social media, The Goodacre, uh, MN, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, yeah, I'd love to show anybody who's interested around who wants to talk aggregation and food hubs and food systems. You know, we are a real passionate bunch here at The Goodacre. So if you have a favorite uh, type of beef cow that you want to tell me about, just step on in. And I'll tell you my favorite variety of heirloom squash. How about that?
1: That sounds like a perfect trade off. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Nikki. And I think with that, we are going to wrap the episode there. So, again, if you want to follow The Goodacre on social media, that's at The Goodacre MN. Uh, you can also find them online, thegoodacre.org. If you want to find The Moose Room on the interwebs, you can find us at extension.umn.edu and on Twitter at umnmoosroom and at UMN Farm Safety. Uh, if you have questions, comments, or scathing rebuttals about today's episode, you can email those to The Moose Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. Our line is 612-624-3610. And that is a wrap. Nikki, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you,
2: Emily. Thanks, Dr. Joe. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.